C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I became a Christian when I was almost 16, and the reason I became a Christian was for, well, started it with cultural reasons, you know, friends, family, um, girls, and so uh, I eventually came to church and I heard the claims of Christianity. Um, I heard the claims of Jesus. Um, but as I was on this journey, my dad challenged me and he said, don't just become a Christian because it's cultural. Don't just become a Christian because your friends tell you to or because those around you are. Become a Christian because it's true. Become a Christian because the claims that Christ made are actually real. And so that led me on a journey. Start asking is Jesus who he says he is? Did he really raise from the dead? Is he really still with us? And as I, as I went on this journey to discover these things, I found Christ and God saved me. He saved me by seeing Jesus, by seeing who he was, by seeing his claims, by looking at him, I was saved. I found in Jesus someone that is totally different than anything I'd ever looked at or everything I've ever seen, a life that was marked and was contrasted from this world. But in the 11 years that I've been walking with the Lord, um, I've grown a lot in my relationship with him. And it's true that, as Lewis says, it's not only that I'm a Christian because I see Jesus, but it's because by seeing Jesus, I see everything else. In the last 11 years, I can't make sense of the world outside of him. I can't make sense of my own heart that he is the key to making sense of all of our lives. He helps us to understand the desires of our heart the longings that we have in our lives. He even helps us to understand the world around us. You see, he's like the sun. He clarifies and brings light to everything else that we see. And so that's what I want to do with our time today. What I want us to do is that I want us to look at Jesus. I want us to look at his claims. And then I want us to look through his claims to see the world around us. How does his claims actually impact and affect the way that we live and the way that we love this world? And so if you're new here, perhaps you're far from God, I hope you feel welcomed. I hope you feel loved. I hope you know that you're, you're cared for. But I have a couple things. I hope that as we go through our time today that you might feel challenged by the, the claims of Jesus, by the historical evidence for the resurrection, that you would feel challenged by that, but you would also be encouraged you would be encouraged by looking at the hope that he has to offer. That by seeing through the hope that he gives, it would change and provide a new perspective on your life and the way that you work and the way that you live and the way that you do time with your family, all of these things. For those of us who come and who follow Christ, um, I hope that this is a time of great celebration where we come together and, and we remember the radical nature of Jesus' resurrection or we don't just symbolize it, we don't just dismiss it as something to do together, but instead we realize that we are not just Easter people on one Sunday a year, but we are Easter people every single day. And so I hope that the radical nature of the resurrection will sink in and it will, it will deepen our faith and our trust in God. So first, the reality of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection. Jesus makes a claim that sets Christianity apart. Christianity is different than any other world religion. How? Because its claim is squarely in history. There is a claim that Christianity says. It says that Jesus did in fact raise from the dead, and this is a historical claim. It's not simply spiritual beliefs or philosophical arguments, but it says that there is an event that happened that changed history. 
right? And there are questions we have to have. How did the early church start? How did disciples come and start proclaiming a risen Savior? And so Christianity says there is something that actually happened. There's truth behind the proclamation that Jesus has risen. You see, often people come to Christianity and they reject it because they say, well, I don't really like the sexual teaching about it. It seems a little difficult, maybe old school and repressive. Or, man, those moral, the moral teaching on it just seems too difficult. Who could live up to that? And so they dismiss Christianity, but they don't stop and ask whether I like it or dislike it, but is it true? You see, there's many things that you might like or dislike, but it doesn't mean that they're not true. And so we have to stop and ask before we say, I don't like or dislike this part of Christianity. Before we pick and choose different parts, we have to stop and ask, is it actually true? Did the claims that Jesus make, were they real? And did they follow up with a reality of a resurrection? And so I want us to look real briefly at the case for the resurrection. Just a couple points. First, the accounts that we have of the resurrection are found in the scriptures, are found. We have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what I often hear when I talk to people is that there's something along this reason when I talk to those that, that don't believe in the resurrection is that, well, the Bible was you know, written long, long after Jesus you know, had died and raised, and so people had written myths into the scriptures. And so we can't really trust the Bible because you know, it, just, it was written so much far after the disciples were there and so much far after Jesus was even alive. And in my time in college, that was one of the questions I sought to examine. And what I learned is it's actually flipped on its head. That the New Testament is actually the most historical, reliable document we have in the past thousand years behind. There's a document called P52. It's a fragment um, that they've discovered. It's within 30 years of the actual writing of the Gospel of John. It was written, and the, the fragment's around 125 AD. The Gospel of John was written roughly around 85 or 90. So what we have in the New Testament isn't myths or legends written hundreds of years after Jesus existed, but actually the eyewitness accounts. And so here's the thing. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But for this case, you at least have to agree that they're historically reliable. Even people that are in the field of textual criticism, those that study this field specifically and are not Christians, will tell you that the Bible is actually reliable. The New Testament is actually reliable. That There's no major doctrine that changes. That all of what is written here is actually what the disciples penned, is actually what they saw and what they reported. So we're working with reliable historical documents at the least. And I hope that as you read them, you'll see that they are more than that, so much more. And they will change the way that you live. So we have the New Testament. We also have that Jesus was a real person, right? I mean, I think this is a pretty obvious one, but Jesus actually existed. He actually lived. He was a Jew that lived and proclaimed the kingdom of God. He was from Galilee, and he stirred up a revolution. He started something, right, that got him into a lot of trouble with both the Jews of the ruling class, but also the Romans. And so because he proclaimed this kingdom of God, because he came talking about these things, he was crucified by the powers that were be. And so we have Jesus who was real, a Jew from Galilee, coming, proclaiming a kingdom, proclaiming that he was the Messiah, that he came to rescue and to redeem what God had promised in the Old Testament. And because of his claims, he was crucified. He was killed. He was publicly executed in front of hundreds, if not thousands of people for all to see. So we have Jesus who was real, who was crucified. Now we have that Jesus was placed in a tomb. He was placed in a tomb by a large boulder, a large boulder, and a Roman guard was given to surround it. You see, Jesus told and said that he would raise. And so when he died, the Pharisees said, listen, 
We know this imposter said he was going to rise, so put a Roman guard to guard against his disciples stealing the body. And so Jesus was taken off the cross. He was put in a tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man, and he gave his tomb to Jesus. And so they would have taken Jesus' body off the cross and packed it. They would have wrapped it in linen and packed it with over 100 pounds of spices to keep it from smelling. And they would have put it in a tomb. You see, in the accounts, none of the accounts debates this. You don't even hear the opponents of Christianity talking against this. They all say, yeah, we know he was killed. We know he was placed in the tomb. But they all go, well, what happened after that? And so we know that Jesus was placed in a tomb with a Roman guard to surround it, a large boulder placed in 100 pounds of spices over his body. Now, the two debated things and the two big question marks is that we have first that the tomb was empty. Three days after Jesus resurrected, his tomb was found empty. The morning of the third day, a group of women came, and they came to bring additional spices to the burial tomb of Jesus. But as they came, they found that the stone was rolled away, and they went in, and they didn't find him. Now, we know that the tomb was empty, not only because the women were the first ones to get there, but because James and John, who also followed them, saw that the tomb was empty. Not only this, but... Christianity's claims wouldn't have gotten off the ground if there wasn't an empty tomb, right? If they had gone to the wrong tomb or if the tomb wasn't empty, then when the early disciples started to proclaim Jesus is raised from the dead, the first thing they would have done was they would have gone and gotten the body. They would have said, you're wrong, here's the body, and they would have pulled it out, or here's the bones, and they would have pulled it out. But you don't see that. What you see is that they claim that the, the disciples stole the body, and so we know that there was an empty tomb, that something happened. But an empty tomb by itself doesn't prove anything, right? The last point is what really seals it, is that not only do we have an empty tomb, but we have resurrected sightings. That we have, and there's five different things I want to talk through that just shows the resurrected sightings and why we as Christians believe that this is actually true. The first one is that there's the frequency and variety of encounters. The Bible talks about that there's over 10 different instances in which Jesus is seen. And so it's not like we just have one encounter in which the people came and saw Jesus. But instead, we have a variety of encounters to a whole lot of different people, over 500. And so you have some where Jesus appears and they're fishing, right? And so they're not really in a mood of mourning while they're fishing. I mean, they're saddened, but they're actually doing work. And so you don't have this lending to be in a hallucination because you don't have them in this... In all cases, you don't have them in this state of deep depression and, uh, and deep remorse, but instead, they're in a variety of things. He appears on the road to Emmaus, talking with people um, that are you know, discussing the events that have just unfolded. He appears to the women. And so we have too many of a, a variety of instances, as well as too many of a number of people that actually have seen Jesus. Not only that, but then we have that women were the first ones to find Jesus. If you're making up a claim in the first century, you, for better or worse, you don't use women as your source. In the first century, women were not used in court. Their testimony was not valid. And so if you're making up a claim, if you want to start out by saying Jesus is risen, the last thing you do is say, and the first ones to see him were women, because you wouldn't be believed. And actually, in the early church, it was mocked. Christians were mocked that that was the evidence that they used, that that was what really happened. So why in the world would you use that? Why would you make up a story where women were the first ones to see it if that didn't happen? Because it actually happened, right? Because women actually were the first people to see Jesus, that they encountered him. So we have women that see Jesus. And this next one is probably the biggest point. But we have cowardly disciples that turn into bold proclaimers. 
We have cowardly disciples that turn into bold proclaimers. So we see that before and during Jesus' crucifixion, his disciples flee from him. They run away. They deny him. They fall asleep on him. Peter, who swears that he's going to go to his death to save Jesus, denies Jesus three times. And so we have all these disciples that have denied Jesus, that have run away, that now go to their deaths proclaiming Jesus. Right? We know that Peter was crucified upside down because, because he said that he was not worthy to die the same death that his Savior died. But here's the thing. We don't just have people that believed in Jesus reporting this, but we have people that didn't believe in Jesus being transformed and reporting about his resurrection. Right? In, in the Gospels, it says that they doubted. They didn't believe. And Jesus had to appear to them. Right? And he had to discuss with them. He had to show himself to them. He had to say, feel me, touch me. Right? We have Thomas. You know, almost everybody's seen Jesus at this point. The women have seen Jesus. The, most of the disciples have seen Jesus. And Thomas still doesn't believe. He's like, listen, I don't care. You guys are wrong. I won't believe until I see him, until I feel him, until I put my hands in his wrists, until I put my hand upon his side. I will not believe that he is truly risen. And so Jesus comes, walks through a locked door, and appears to Thomas and says, Thomas, here I am. Touch me. Feel me. Touch my wrist. Put your hand in my side and tell that I am real. Right? And Thomas at that moment says, my Lord and my God. And he is transformed. His doubt turns into faith. Not only do we have Thomas, but we have James. Right? James is the half-brother of Jesus. And during Jesus' ministry and during Jesus' life, James and Jesus' family sought to institutionalize Jesus, right? Jesus is proclaiming, and Jesus and his family are saying, listen, he's making us look bad. He's saying that he's God. He's doing all these things. All right, we need to put him in the loony bin. And so you see, they come, and they go to take Jesus and go to, like, quiet him down. They go to, to take him away. And so what happens Jesus goes from not believing that his brother is God and thinking that he's a lunatic to then going and being one of the first founders of the early church, being the head of the Jerusalem church. What would it take for you to believe your brother is the son of God? Maybe if he proclaimed that he was going to die and resurrect and then he actually did. And we have James going to his death. He was thrown off the temple mount and his head was beat in because he refused to deny that his brother was God. Not only this, but then we have the Apostle Paul, right? So Paul didn't actually meet Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. Paul was a persecutor of Christianity. In the early church, they were going, they were proclaiming that Christ was Lord, that Jesus had risen, and Paul hated Christians. He hated them because he thought that they were blaspheming God, that they were telling a lie. And so Paul sought to kill them. He sought to persecute them. He held the coats while the first Christian martyr, Stephen, was killed. And Paul rejoiced, and Paul approved eagerly and on the road to damascus paul is going and he has an edict that says that he's going to persecute and kill even more christians and on the road jesus appears to paul and he says saul saul why are you persecuting me right and saul's entire life is transformed a person who didn't have any any knowledge of jesus during his earthly ministry saw jesus resurrected in his glorified and transformed body and is transformed. Paul, who persecuted Christians, would go on to write 13 letters in the New Testament and would give his life for Jesus, proclaiming that he really was who he said he was, that he had risen and he was real. He was beheaded by Nero in around 65 to 66 AD. 
So we have all of these different cases of all of these people who knew and gave their lives. Now, here's the thing. There's lots of people that will die for what they believe to be the truth, right? I mean, we see it all the time in our, you know, like in our country, in different areas, we have extreme extremists that give their life for what they believe to be the truth. Here's the thing. The disciples were the only ones to know what was true. They didn't just believe it. They were the ones to know if it was true or not. Nobody dies for what they know to be a lie is. Right? Liars and fakers are not made of the same stuff as martyrs. The disciples knew, and they went to their death proclaiming that Jesus was who he said he was. Now, I hope that this presses in on you a little bit, that you feel the weight of this. This isn't the only evidence, but part of the other evidence is that the early Christians actually lost Jesus' tomb. Right? They actually lost the tomb. And, and so during Jesus' day, there was over 50 different shrines and tombs of various religious and holy men. And so what would happen is when someone would die, they would make a shrine of their tomb, and they would meet there when the time, around the time that they died, and they would celebrate their life, and they would remember these things. The early church lost Jesus' tomb. We don't exactly know where Jesus' tomb is. Now, you can go to Israel, and you can pay $20, and they'll say, he will take you to the tomb. But that's not, that, that's not, they don't know that. They don't know that that's where Jesus actually died or where he was actually buried because in the mid-100s to early 200s, they start asking, where's the tomb? Why? Why did they lose the tomb? Well, you're not concerned about the tomb when you know he's alive. You don't hold on to a memorial of his death when you know that he's risen. So the early church lost his tombs. Not only this, but the early church changed drastically in their beliefs, right? The Jews, for thousands of years, worshipped on the Sabbath. They worshipped on Saturday, and that was their day of rest. But in the beginning of Christianity, you have a radical new change where they start to worship on Sunday because Sunday is the day of new creation. It's the day where God started over and began something new in the world. And so you have a a, a new belief in, in the Sabbath on Sunday. You also have a heightened belief in the resurrection, right? You have Christians that go into their desk proclaiming that God will give them a new, a new body. And they said that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection. So, There's all this evidence, and I hope that this challenges you to believe. I want to really quickly address probably three different arguments that people that don't believe kind of say and try to explain away the resurrection. The first one is called the cognitive dissonance. And basically what the claim is is that the disciples wanted Jesus to be alive so desperately that they had a psychological breakdown. They actually began to believe that he was risen even though he hadn't. They refused to believe what was true, that he had died, and they actually had a break with reality. Right? That's the claim, is that the disciples had this break, you know, that they wanted something so badly that they almost wished it to be true. Now, I think this is pretty easy to dismiss, because first, the disciples, none of them ever thought that the Messiah would die and actually rise from the dead. They didn't think that. They didn't understand that. That was foreign to them. They might hear when, you know, like they say, oh, Jesus was raised, that, oh, yeah, he'll raise in the last day when God raises all people, but it didn't make any sense to have one person raised before all the other ones would be raised. But not only this, it wasn't just those that believed that were transformed, right? You have Thomas that didn't believe and was doubting, and he's transformed. You have Paul, you have James, you have all these people that didn't even see it coming, being transformed and believing. And so it wasn't that they wanted something so badly that they wished it to be true, right? It was what they didn't believe, and it transformed their hearts in spite of their disbelief, in spite of their doubt. And lastly, they could have just produced the body, Right? I mean, you say, well, you know, I really, I think that he's dead and you have a break with reality and you go proclaiming something. Well, guess what? You're going to have a lot of people that begin to put you in your place. And they say, listen, you might be crazy, but we're not. 
And so they would begin to produce the body. And so we see that this, this doesn't hold water. This is bordering on lunacy. The next one is the swoon theory. Is, this claim is that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, that Jesus just kind of fainted um, and that he resuscitated and then appeared to the disciples and they're like, oh, Jesus is raised. And so they believed. Now, I think this one's, I mean, once again, like it seems ridiculous almost saying it because you're talking about Roman guards who crucified thousands of people. He has a, a sword pierced to his side, right? He's buried for three days in 100 pounds of spices, and then he's supposed to roll away a tomb and scare away a Roman guard and appear to the disciples after three days of not eating, being beaten down, and say, I'm raised. And that's supposed to like encourage them to go proclaim that he's raised from the dead to all the world. Like if I see somebody that like gets out of the tomb and is malnourished and is half beaten, I go get them food in a blanket. I don't say he's risen and worship him. And so we see that the swoon theory just doesn't hold water. It doesn't make sense. And the last one is the spiritual experience of physical reality. Is what you have is that people say, well, the disciples, they, you know, after Jesus died, they just had this sense on their heart. They just really felt that Jesus was still with them. And they just felt a strong sense of his love and of his forgiveness. And so they began to worship him. Now, here's the thing. First century Jews, they don't say you've been raised from the dead if you have a sense of on your heart. What they would do is that they would say, well, that's nice that you feel that Jesus is with you still. Like, go sing a hymn. Go mourn or go talk about it, but don't proclaim that he's actually physically resurrected. And once again, it doesn't account for where did the body go and how did this happen? Raising from the dead was a very specific term for first century Jews, and they knew what it meant. It meant that he bodily came back to life, that he wasn't a spirit, that he wasn't a hallucination. For he says, listen, feel me, give me a broiled fish, let me eat. He is a physical body that he was raised so we've seen just a, a brief survey, right? We've looked at some of the things for the reality of the resurrection. I hope that it, it challenges you both, maybe encourages your faith to trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that the resurrection actually really did happen. I want to I talk, the point of, some of you maybe come here and you're doubting, and you say, listen, I, don't, I heard all that, but I, really, I still don't believe, or I still don't really know. Maybe I don't have an explanation, but I don't, I don't believe it. Do you understand that the point of, of questioning is to come to an answer? The point of seeking is to find. The point of having an open mind is to close it upon what is true. C.S. Lewis says, you can't go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. To see through all things is the same thing as not to see. And so I hope that as you discover, as this piques your interest and you begin to search and you begin to discover, that you realize that to question everything is to pull out a foundation you'll have no place to stand, that the point of questioning is that you will find, and that in Christ you find a sure foundation. You find a consistent Savior who is there for us. So what difference does this make, right? What practical difference does the resurrection make in our lives? So what? How does it change us? I want to talk about the implications of the resurrection. So four things, four things of how Jesus' resurrection actually changes the way that we think in the way that we live. First, if Jesus was truly raised from the dead, then he's not merely a good moral teacher, one among many, but he's actually Lord of all creation. Right? The first things that the early disciples did was that as they went from the resurrection, is they began to proclaim that Jesus Christ is king, that he is Lord, right? That Caesar isn't. And it empowered them, it gave them boldness to go forth. 
Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's going and he right persecuted Christians, now becomes a Christian and even a church planner. He goes to Athens and he's proclaiming Christ to the philosophers of his day. He goes into you know, the intellectual elite and begins to talk about Jesus to them. And what he says is he says, listen, God is, is not like us, that he's not found in temples made by man, but he's, he's near to us, that he's eternal. And he says he's, he's close to all those who would call on his name. He says this, that the times of ignorance, God overlooked. In the past, God had overlooked because everybody was searching, was seeking, was finding their way. But now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What Paul says here is that Jesus is not one good moral teacher among many, but he is actually Lord of all creation, right? That he is the one who is appointed, who will give judgment. And he says, you're seeking, you're questioning. It was all fine. But now the answer has come. Now we know the truth. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus claims that he is God, right? And, and his resurrection doesn't prove that he's God, but it's consistent with his claims to be God because you see only someone who is God could do what he did. And so Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that, that he is Lord, Right? It sets him apart in a category all of his own from any other religious system, belief system. Right? Why? How? Not just because he raised from the dead, but it was how he raised from the dead. Right? Because the Old Testament, the New Testament, it talks about that there are other people that are raised from the dead. Other faith systems say that people have been raised from the dead, but nobody was raised from the dead like Jesus was raised from the dead. Right? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead or he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, what you have is that you have more of a resuscitation, right? Lazarus comes and he still smells and he has to undo of his cloths and he comes forth and they're like kind of like getting food and, and they're amazed at it, right? Death, the defeater of all, it lost its grip on Lazarus. Lazarus slipped through its grip. But do you see with Jesus, Jesus broke death's grip. Jesus tore death apart. In Christ's death, we have the death of death. Right, the victory of death and of hell over, you know, by Jesus' death and resurrection. Right, he rose never to die again. And that is why he's Lord, is that his body will never fade. He will never perish. He will never die again. And therefore, he is the author of life. He is the defeater of death. John, who saw Jesus in the Revelation, he says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys to death and to Hades. Jesus conquered death, and he alone has the keys to overcoming it. He is Lord, not one among many, but Lord of all. He is the Lord of creation, the one that we will worship. And all of us, all of us have to face that. Do you see John was terrified because of his power, but then he was humbled and transformed because of his love. Christ's power will first humble you before it transforms you. Do you allow his lordship? Have you submitted to his lordship? Have you submitted to his lordship or his lordship is game? Do you play the game of Christianity? Do you come on a day? Do you come in times and you give God a piece but not the whole? Because everyone will come and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And he loves you. Let his lordship rescue you.
Because here's the thing. He's a little bit more knowledgeable than you are. He's eternal. He's been around for a while. He kind of knows what he's doing. And so as you trust your life to him, as you give yourself to him, he will change you. He is a good master. He's a good boss. He's a good king. And he rules well. He leads to peace. Trust in his lordship. Walk in it. Believe it. Because he is raised, he is Lord of all. Not one among many, but the one who rules over all. The next thing that we see if Jesus has truly been raised is that Jesus' bodily resurrection guarantees us a future hope. Right? It guarantees us a future hope. Now, the claims of Christianity is not that when we die, that we just float around this ethereal existence for all of eternity. Right? Paul says that the moment in which we die, that we are present with the Lord. He says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so as we pass, those who trust in Christ, as they pass now, they go to be God's presence. They are with him. But you see, that's not the ultimate hope of Christianity. The ultimate hope of Christianity isn't that we just escape this world, right? But it's that we have a redeemed body. It's that we will be like Jesus was, like his body, his resurrected and glorified body. We will be given new bodies. And what this means is it means that your future is better than your past. It means the best days are yet to come, right? And this is good news. This is good news for us when we are tired, it's good news when we're weird. It's good news when we are broken, when our bodies don't work the way that we should, or when the longings of our life don't match up with reality. When we had so desired that our family would be like this, or that our job would be like this, or that life would be as I imagine it to be, all these longings left unfulfilled. You see, the, the resurrection of Jesus promises that your future will be better than what your present is or your past was. And what this does is it will lead you to give your life away. We will be in bodies. We will eat. We will drink. We will play. We will laugh. We will rejoice and dance with one another in the kingdom of God. Our feet will touch the ground. We will walk with our risen Savior, and we will be with one another to celebrate. We will know one another in Christ, and we will be known. Right? This is a physical future, one of which we can't imagine. We satisfy ourselves with such insignificant things when God has given us eternal joy instead. Do you understand that the, the, most fulfilling, the most fulfilling dinner, the most fulfilling company, the most satisfying pleasure doesn't hold a candle to what you will feel in the resurrection, doesn't compare to what you will experience in the new body and the new creation that God has in store? Do you know when you, when you believe this, it will transform you right here and right now. It will transform the way that you live. Do you see that being heavenly minded is actually a ton of earthly good? It actually changes the way that you live right here and right now. Do you see it did this for the early church? This is how the early church spread across and took over. Do you wonder how 500 disciples or people that had seen Jesus in a couple hundred years took over all the empire of Rome? It was because the way, the hope that Christians had is that they would go and they would stay in the plagues, right? As people were dying, Christians would give their lives away and they would stay with those who were dying of the plague. And people would ask, Why? Why are you sacrificing your life to care for people that are dying? And they would say, because I'm not living for this life, for I have one far better. Right? They would visit those in prison that nobody would. They would sacrifice their time because they would say, I'm not living for this life. This life is not my fulfillment, and I was made for more, and so I will live for the next one. Do you understand that this is what our world needs? 
This is desperately what our world needs. It needs people that are willing to give of themselves, to give of their lives, to sacrifice their dreams and their desires because they know that the kingdom is better, that what they have coming will far surpass anything that they can experience now. This empowers us to give sacrificially and to give our lives away radically and generously. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Because it will transform the way that you live right here and right now with everyone Everyone you encounter. The third way that the resurrection changes us, the third implication, is that it shows us that God cares about creation. Right? God didn't come to save people out of earth and then just destroy it and bomb it. Jesus' physical resurrection shows that God cares about matter. He cares about our created world. Right? He could have just said, well, Jesus died and Jesus appeared in spiritual form, but he didn't. God brought him back in a new body and it was a symbol that God is going to do a new work. God is going to recreate everything. And he starts with us. Right? God doesn't save us out of the world, but instead he saves, a, saves us in the midst of the world that we might be his agents to bring about change. You see, this is what Jesus, he says, our father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does he pray? What does he say? He says, listen, my kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. There will be a day where the new heavens will merge with earth and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we get to begin to bring that reality in. There will be a point in time in which Christ fulfills it, but we right now are agents of healing, are agents of reconciliation where we're at. So, How can you bring resurrection life to the place that you work? What does it look like for you to bring new life and new hope where you work? What does it look like for you to be good news to your neighbors? What does it look like for you to provide hope and patience and love for your family and for those around you? To bring about, to to be a radical change in culture, to speak up for those that can't speak for themselves, to bring about a change that is so desperately needed. You see, Christ empowers us to speak and to enter into his new work that he's doing. We are saved to be a part of bringing his kingdom in, not simply to wait and to hold and twiddle our thumbs and wait till he saves us out of it. Do you believe that? Do you, are you partnering with God in his resurrection work right here and right now? Are you just waiting for him to rescue out of the world? Because you see, Jesus came into the world to save it. God will redeem the world and he wants to use us to partner with him. Partner with him. The last implication for Jesus' resurrection is that he gives us a new life and he gives us new power right now. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, of Jesus Christ from the dead. What Peter says is he says that resurrection life, Jesus' resurrection life can be tasted right here and right now. Right? We believe that Christ was crucified for our sin, that he took away our old life when we believe in him. When you believe that Jesus actually died for you, your old life, your old nature is taken away. But you see, God's not just content with taking away our sin, with taking away our problems. What God does is through his resurrection, he gives us something. He gives us a new life. He tells us that we have an opportunity to be born again. You see, our biggest problem is us. 
My biggest problem is me. It's my sin, my selfishness, my pride, my self-righteousness. And that's our, each one of us, that's our biggest problem is us. Our sin marks us and it separates us from God. It causes us to be dead to him. You see, all of us enter in and we are dead and set apart from God. But Jesus comes and he says, I will bring new life. And if you believe in me, and if you will trust in me, I will enter into you and I will cause you to be born again. I will give you the Holy Spirit who will give you a new desire and give you a new love and a new hope. And so right now, he will join you in fighting and giving you change. Right, The good news of Christianity isn't that you have to change yourself and you have to be good to come to God and then he'll finally accept you. The good news of Christianity is that, listen, while you're no good, while you're in the midst of your sin, while you were a mess, you came to God and he changed you and he transformed you because he is good. And so don't wait. Come. Jesus gave all of himself to you. He didn't hold himself back, but he gave all of himself to you that you might know his love, that you might know his care, would you give all of yourself to him? Would you allow him to, to live in you, to live through you? Would you trust him? Would you stop trying to control and be lord of your life, but instead believe that he is a good master, and that he will lead you, he will guide you, and he will join you in your life to fight the battles that you can't fight He will gain victory where you only saw defeat if you allow him to reign and rule in your life. We are weak, but he is strong. As we finish, as we pray, you have a lifeline. I'd ask that you grab that. And my challenge is that as you grab that, as you start to think, have you given yourself unto him? If you haven't trusted Christ, if you're here and you don't know Christ, perhaps you've come to church your whole life. Perhaps you come occasionally in Easter and Christmas. My challenge is is that Jesus wants all of you. When Jesus comes in relationship with us, he doesn't just come as Savior, but he comes as Lord. Would you trust him? Would you believe in him? Would you give your life into him? For those of us that know Christ, that proclaim him, would you give yourself to him afresh? Would you once again remember the hope and the strength and the power that is in Christ through his resurrection? And would you trust it? Would you walk in it? Would you believe it? Pray with me. Father, thank you so much that you are good. Thank you for the power of the resurrection. Thank you for the the celebration of Easter, that you've come, that you've conquered the grave, that you defeated death through rising. And so I pray that, um, that we as your people, that we would remember, that we would celebrate, that we would be transformed, that we remember that you are Lord, that that we have a hope that is sure, that can lead us to, to sacrifice, to give our life away because we aren't living for this life, but rather for the next. That if we are heavenly minded, we will truly and only then will we be earthly good. Lord, that you don't save us merely out of this world, but instead you save us in it, that we would be reconcilers and redeemers and resurrectors with you, that we would partner with you. God, and you, you give us hope, Lord, not that we have to change ourselves, to come to you, but instead that when we come to you, you change us, that you can defeat and gain victory over the struggles in our life that we never can because you are king and you are strong and we are weak. We love you, Jesus, and we worship you. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.